Good morning. Chris and Harold Carroll and their son Micah are making a 17-day trip to Southeast Asia uh, a week from Tuesday. And so uh, before our lesson, we want uh, to have a special prayer for them. So if we can get the Carroll family to make your way down front and all of our elders as well. And as they're making their way down, uh, I'll share for all of us to know, be reminded, the Carroll family uh, served as missionaries in this area for 12 years. And I'm saying Southeast Asia because many of you know why we are vague about that, which speaks to their boldness and faith to uh, go and make this trip and even return. Uh, they were there for 12 years working with several churches, especially focusing on uh, trafficking, prevention of young girls. So their goal for this trip is to encourage the churches to, to revisit where they've been before, uh, to encourage the Christians there. And we as a church want to uh, do the best we can for them, and that's pray. Uh, so this morning, our elders want to surround them physically, but also in prayer, and we want to do this as a church family. Steve? Most gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to come together this morning and worship you as a family here at West 7. Father, we're especially thankful for the opportunity to, uh, to pray with the Carroll family for the services that they've rendered thus far in Southeast Asia. We're thankful. Father, we pray that you might be with them as they make another trip. We might, that you might have your hand upon them, that you might guide them and direct them and be with those that they're going to see and the hearts that can be touched there. Father, we ask that you help them so that they might look for those opportunities and that those opportunities might find them. Father, be with them and bless them. We ask for safety for them on their travels. We ask for safe, safety while they're there and safety when they return. Father, we ask that you be with them, bless them, and bless those that they touch. This we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. An answered prayer is on the front of your bulletin. Uh, Jackson and Audrey Shamblin will be joining our ministry team. Uh, he'll be in the office as of Tuesday. They'll be with us next Sunday, so you'll get to, to meet them, and it'll be a big day. Our summer interns are also arriving this week, so uh, a lot of exciting things going on in our, our student ministry. Summer is here, and for the next few months, we're going to focus on the one another passages in Scripture. Jesus designed his kingdom to be experienced in community, not in isolation. We all have our own faith. We all have our own relationship with God. But the intentional design by God was for life in Jesus to be shared with others. You know, during COVID, especially the shutdown, isolation was a challenge for all of us. Businesses are still struggling to redefine what the workplace looks like. Some are 100% back in person. Some will never resume the way it was before COVID. And churches have had to deal with the consequences of isolation. There is something about being together, about sharing life together. We are made for community. I mean, who chooses to go out to eat alone or to go to a movie alone? We don't choose that. We like to be with others. You know the age-old saying, shared joy is double joy, shared sorrow is half a sorrow. We all understand the need to be with a friend, with family, with someone. And yet, we need to be honest about this. 
Sometimes being with people is a challenge. There are difficult people in this world. Don't look around and point, but sometimes that's you. Sometimes that's me. It's not always pleasant. We all remember the Peanuts cartoon by Charles Schultz. Look at this one about Linus, where he says, I love mankind, it's people I cannot stand. Do you ever feel that way? It's like a doctor saying, I'd love to practice medicine if I didn't have to deal with those sick people. Or the teacher saying, I love to teach, it's just the students, or worse, the parents that we have to deal with. And you think, how do we do this? Of course, if you never deal with people, you might think you're doing ministry for Jesus, but you're not doing ministry like Jesus. Trevor Wax wrote an article. It's entitled, Love What's Near. I shared the entire article with our small group Bible study leaders. I want to share just a couple of quotes because I believe he speaks to the misperception that is common in our culture and our thinking today. He began by quoting Kevin DeYoung. It says, our generation is prone to radicalism without follow-through. We want to change the world, and we've never changed a diaper. And he goes on, we're all about loving others and loving people and loving your neighbor in the abstract. But then we discover the others around us and the actual persons we come to know and our real next-door neighbor might turn out to be harder to love than we expected Many relate to the annoyances and obstacles that make it hard to love those closest to us. We're told that marriage is all about compatibility. But what if the greater secret of marriage is working through incompatibility, standing forever next to the spouse you sometimes can't stand? We're told that loving our kids comes naturally, but what if it requires a supernatural endurance? Yes, you commit to loving your kids no matter what, but that kind of love often requires you to leap over whatever you may dislike about them in the moment. He continues, social media makes it easy for us to see ourselves as more loving than we really are because we to redefine love in terms of our love the world we express or the social change we get behind or the causes we support. Still, in the end, it's not saying believe all women or black lives matter or make America great again that ultimately defines the test of our loves. Slogans are easy. Suffering is hard. And there is no real love without suffering. Our ideas of loving, whatever is massive and influential, of scaling our love in the abstract, can lead us to overlook what is right in front of us, the people and things that are nearest. All our efforts at building a better church or bringing about a more perfect union in our society will come to naught unless we first love what is nearest. We must love God before we run after what we think we can do for God. We must focus on our family before we can focus on the family. We must love our next door neighbor before we look for ways to improve the neighborhood. We must love the church member with whom we have little in common before we can love, quote, the church, unquote. The love that goes farther starts with loving what is nearest. With that as the introduction, I want us to begin a series of study for this summer, and the phrase that we're going to be looking at is one another. And our text is John 13, 34, and 35. It's the night before Jesus would be murdered. He spends this precious time with his disciples. He knows 
that his life is about to come to an end. So he gathers with them in the upper room and they partake of the Passover meal. But beforehand, you remember, he took off his outer garments, wrapped himself with a towel, and stooped down and washed their feet. And then makes a profound statement that becomes the distinguishing mark, the statement that just capsulizes who he is and what his ministry is about, what his kingdom is to be known for. Everything hinges on these two verses. Look at John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So for the next few moments, I want you to follow along. I want to make some observations from the text, and we're going to unpack this more in our small group Bible studies. But first, just as way of beginning, as a disciple of Jesus, another love is a defining mark. It is a defining mark. Jesus gave us the golden rule. Everybody knows the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. One author, one author calls this, John 13, 34, and 35, the platinum rule. As I have loved you, you must love another. The golden rule is golden, but this is up a notch for sure. Because implicit in Jesus' words is the assumption that discipleship requires community. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus by yourself. It's meant to be shared with other believers and to share it with those who do not yet believe. That's why our mission is striving to be completely committed followers of Jesus. Discipling, equipping, serving, loving. Following Jesus is a personal choice. No one can follow Jesus for you. And yet, as you follow Jesus, you do that with others. As you worship, as you disciple, equip, serve, and love. And this is not something new. This is not something that Jesus, okay, last night, before I go, I need to share one more thing, and it's a doozy. No, this is something that has been shared all along the way. Look at 1 John 3, verse 11. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So from the very start of your life in Jesus, you are to love others' people. It's to be life with others. That's why this phrase, one another, and you've heard this before, you've studied it before. This one another, we're familiar with this because it appears so many times in Scripture. Ninety times in the New Testament. Ninety times in 27 books. Ninety times. Thirty-five different verbs are used before it. No less than 59 verses. Love one another, serve one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, accept one another. The list goes on and on and on. So what do we need to understand in this introductory lesson? What do we need to understand about this another love that Jesus is talking about in John 13? Well, a couple of points I want us to make. Another love is not optional. He said, a new command I give you. Notice Jesus didn't say, hey, here's a new way. Or think about this. Or give this a try. Here's a new possibility. A new command is what he said. Look at 2 John 1 verse 6. Love means doing what God has commanded us. And he's commanded us to love one another, just as you heard from the beginning. So you don't get to decide whom you will love and whom you will not love. You love everyone. You love people. You love one another. 
If you've made Jesus your Lord, then you don't get to pick which command you follow. And this is his command. So here's the point. You really cannot obey any command of our Lord if you don't obey this one. That's what Paul wrote. That's how he explained it in Romans 13. Look at verses 8 and 9. Do not owe people anything except always owe love to each other, because the person who loves others has obeyed all the law. The law says you must not be guilty of adultery. You must not murder anyone. You must not steal. You must not want to take your neighbor's things. All these commands and all others are really only one rule. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love is a universal moral truth. It is always right to love. It is always wrong not to love. And if you're wrong about love, you cannot be right with God. And here's a challenge. We need to get into this more in the coming weeks. But there are some who call themselves Christians who don't use that word love the way the Bible uses that word love. So we need to understand that as well. But I like the way the message renders 1 John 4, 21. The command we have from God is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. I love the way the message just makes it point blank. So understand, as a follower of Jesus, we cannot love others with any kind of love. It must be another love. Look how Jesus described it. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So another love is not optional, but there's more to understand about this. And that's the second. Another love is unconditional. Jesus' love is another kind of love because he did not love selectively or discriminately. He did not, did not love based on the return he might get, whether people would love him back or not. It was an in spite of love, not a because of love. See, most of the love that we practice is what we've experienced, and that's a conditional kind of love. It, usually it's just the, the bare minimum that we've got to do to get by. And we're hesitant to be free with our love because love costs us. There's suffering involved with love. Remember that quote we read from earlier? We understand that. But Jesus is not impressed with that kind of loving. That's not what he's calling us to. Look what Jesus said in Luke 6, 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Unconditional love is hard. It's intentional. It is not automatic. Listen to this statement. Many Christians never practice loving beyond what a person without the Holy Spirit can do. Let me read that again. Many Christians never practice loving beyond what a person without the Holy Spirit can do. As I have loved you, so you must love one another, is what Jesus says. Let me ask you this, maybe a little test. What qualifiers, what walls do we place around our love, our, our limits? How do we do that? Same age bracket? Same skin color? Same political views, same beliefs about God. Those are the ones we deem worthy of love. There is a tendency in all of us to love those who think like us, who look like us, who are similar to us. 
or even those who can return love to us. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And remember the setting of these words. This is after he washes their feet, and included in that group was Judas. When we think about that for a moment, like how could he wash Judas' feet? He had to know what was coming. But God does not love people because of who they are. God loves people because of who he is. And he's calling us to love people because of who we are. He's loved us. And that's how he's calling us to love others. Jesus explained that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous. Only another love could explain the cross. We just sang about that. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And look on the screen how the message translates this or paraphrases this. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. I'm no Greek scholar, but I looked it up, and that's not what the Greek says. Our other translations is more accurate with the Greek. But I appreciate that wording because that's the way we think, isn't it? People who are of no use. How... How well do you do at loving people who are of no use to you? That's what we're talking about here. So Jesus removes the burden of deciding whom to love. We don't get to choose that. You want to know whom you are to love? Whomever God puts in your path. Whomever, it's like people you work with, people you come in contact with, those are the ones you are to love. When you love without conditions or stipulations, you're loving like Jesus, like our master. I read about a couple who did just that. They were trying to reach out to their neighbors, and a couple had moved in. They were in the Air Force, so they reached out to the couple, and they tried to initiate some conversations about Jesus, and this couple was not interested. The man loved to play golf, and the other man did too, so they would golf together, but they never really could get anything beyond just enjoying golf. And the guy in the Air Force would bring his friend, Fred, along, and he was a single guy, and, and they would all play golf together, but Fred was interested, and so there were many conversations about spiritual things. It was going very well until the Air Force deployed him to Europe for three months. So he was gone. When he came back, the Christian reached out to Fred and said, hey, glad you're back. And... and, and Fred's response was rude. In fact, he cussed at him. He said, I'm not interested in any of your blank, blank, blank. There was a little bit of a silence. And the Christian said, okay. He knew what had happened. He'd gone back to Europe and spent time there and kind of fallen off the moral wagon. And he felt guilty about it and do, doing what he needed, thought he had to do. He just turned his back on all of it. And so the Christian said, Okay, when can we go golfing? Fred said, you still want to golf? He said, well, yeah, we're still friends, aren't we? A week later, they went golfing. About a month later, Fred was baptized into Christ. Why? 
It's loving without conditions. It's loving without any guarantee of them loving you back. It's loving because of who you are. You are a child of the King. So you love as Jesus loved. Another love is unconditional. One more. Another love is irrefutable. Look again in our text, John 13, 34, and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Look at what Jesus is saying here. He's promising this kind of love, this kind of love tells the world that we belong to him. It's what we're to be known for. This is our reputation. Later that same night, Jesus prayed these words. Look at John 17, verse 21. He says, I pray that they, may, they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. Now look at this. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Look at what he's saying here. Jesus, in the way we connect to one another, the way we love one another, our unity, our togetherness, the way we treat one another, communicates to the world who he is. Not just that we belong to him, but who he is. It is truly another love. When we love one another as he loves, the world can't help but take notice. It's beautiful, it's powerful. It's irrefutable. Let me give an example. About 10, 11 years ago, you remember the name Jeremy Lin? If you were a basketball fan, you remember his name. He was the talk of the NBA. He was the undrafted player that was just, everybody was talking about, especially the sportscasters couldn't get enough. Lin Sanity became the, the word that everybody was talking about at the, at the time. One ESPN reporter wrote an article, and without meaning to, his headline was deemed racially insensitive. And he was just brutally taken down. He didn't mean it that way. He called himself, his name is Anthony Frederico. He called himself a, a committed Christian. So he apologized publicly and asked for Lynn's forgiveness. Lynn, also a follower of Jesus Christ, forgave him. But then Lynn, the player, took it one step further and invited the reporter to lunch. Federico wrote this, we met at a restaurant in Manhattan. We had lunch and talked for an hour. We barely talked about the headline because he knew and believed me that there was no intent behind it. He was on my side. It was so great to have his support. He felt badly about what happened and the way I was being destroyed in the media. He reached out to me and I will never forget how gracious he was. We discussed our personal faith stories and how our identity as Christians defines us and not our occupations or circumstances. I told him about my personal walk with Jesus. He told me about his. We talked about God's unfathomable mercy. We talked about the Knicks and their playoff hopes. We laughed a lot. These words made it throughout all the news sources in the country, and the media did not know what to make of it all. This is strange. Two people who refused to be at odds with each other understand the way we love one another is how we proclaim we have a Savior like no other. And that's what this series on one another is going to cover. 
Look at what Jesus said later in this same prayer, John 17, verse 26. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me, the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. Did you get that? Look what he's saying here, that Jesus prayed God's love for Jesus would be in us. That God would love us the way God loves Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? That's God's love. It's in you. So I'm going to conclude this message and yet begin this series with this point. Because this is critical. I mean, we can talk about all these one another passages, but if you miss this, you're missing it. So I'm really glad you're here today. I think some of you know this. I know that some of you know this. But I'm concerned that there's some who don't quite get this. It begins with letting God love you. You must let God love you with another love. The greatest truth of the universe is the hardest to believe. There is a love that never fails. It is truly another love. What if there is a love that doesn't create your worth? I mean, it's not based on your worth, but creates your worth. What if you've got a love, you see this love that's not based on your performance, but it's based on your existence? God made you, therefore God loves you. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, Even before he made the world, God loves us. I believe this is true. You will never love like Jesus until you believe God loves you like Jesus. You want to know why we struggle to love one another? Do you want to know why? Why do we fail at this? It's because it's impossible to pour into others from an empty tank. How can you give what you don't have? That's what we're talking about here. It's hard to give grace, forgiveness, patience, kindness, if you've not received that from God. But when you've been loved, when you've been forgiven, when you've experienced grace, you are full and then you're able to give to others. It's so hard to love until you let God love you. And here's the, something I want us to think about. This is not, yeah, this is something those new Christians need to know. This is something all of us need to know and be reminded of. Philip Yancey helped me to understand this. During the process of writing his book, Disappointment with God, and it's been around for a while. It's a, it's a good one. You, you ought to read it. He was traveling to a conference, had one of those inconvenient five-hour layovers, so he was in the airport there just kind of wasting time, killing time, and he was seated by someone who was going to the same conference. Well, the content of his book, Disappointment with God, he was so consumed, engrossed with all these thoughts about unanswered prayers and doubts and, and sorrows and life's heavy burdens. And so he shared his disappointments with this lady, his own disappointments with the church and his own personal doubts. And so after listening to his melancholy talk for some time, 
this wise woman asked a very penetrating question. Philip, she said, do you ever let God just love you? Do you ever let God just love you? It's pretty important, I think. This acclaimed author says it was a question that lingers with him still. Because as he wrote, it brought to light a gaping hole in my spiritual life. For all my absorption in the Christian faith, I had missed the most important message of all. The story of Jesus is a story of celebration, a story of love. God redeemed us because he loves us. And we need to adequately bask in that wonderful reality. Do you know who got that? Do you know who got this that we're talking about? John did. Remember James and John? So full of themselves, sons of thunder. I mean, just take them all out. That was their perspective. But do you remember how John referred to himself in his writings? The disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you're familiar with his writings, we call him the gospel of love. Or the, the, he's such a loving person. That's not the way he called himself. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that, don't you? Wouldn't you like to be known like that? A person who's so consumed with the thought, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. I am a disciple whom Jesus loves. Folks, that's not just an important truth. That is the important truth. Because if you miss this, you can know all kinds of Bible. You can be in church every Sunday. You can teach all types of scriptural truth. But you've missed the main thing. I think it's only when we get this that we can live out Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Look what the Bible says here. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. You are his dear children. Live a life filled with love. Live a life filled with love. Before you can love one another, you must receive his love. I want to take a moment and do just that. I've got a verse on the screen. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. You're probably very familiar with this passage. I want to read it. And you can look at the screen, read along with me. Or maybe just close your eyes and listen. Because this is such good news. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let God love you. Be filled with His love. Let God forgive you. Let God wash you clean in baptism. Let God make you a new creation. We're going to sing another love song. And it's our invitation. Whatever you need to be in God's love, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage. The Lord needs-
Oh, to